0: Welcome back to the History Academy. This week we'll be talking about The Children, a short story that marks the beginning of all writing. A story by William Trevor that follows a young girl with the death of one beginning the life of another with the guest star Efron Hindis and my sister. See you guys in a second. And we're back. So we're going to be reading the story, uh, The Children by William Trevor. So here goes my life. We must go now, Connie's father said. And Connie didn't say anything. The two men stood with their shovels, hesitating. Everyone else, including Mr. Crozier, who had conducted the funeral service, had gone from the graveside, cars were parked starting, or were already being eased out of where they were parked, close to the church wall on the narrow road. We have to go, Connie, her father said. Connie felt in the pocket of her coat for the scarf ring and thought for a moment she had lost it, but then she felt the narrow silver band. She knew it wasn't silver, but they had always pretended. before forward to drop it on the coffin. She took the hand her father held out to her. By the churchyard gate, they caught up with the last of the mourners, Mrs. Archdale and the elderly brothers, Arthur and James Dobbs. To come to the house, her father invited them in case an invitation hadn't already been passed on to them. But people knew. The cars that were slipping away were all going in the same direction, to the house three and a quarter miles away. Still, just within the townland of Farah Connie would have preferred this to be different. She would have liked the house to be quiet now and had imagined this afternoon... Her father and herself, gathering up her mother's belongings, arranging them in whatever way the belongings of the dead usually were arranged. Her father explained how they could be as they went along. She had thought of them alone after the funeral, doing all this because it was time for it, because there was something he felt. Her mother's dying and the death itself had been orderly and anticipated. Connie had known for months that it would come, for weeks that she would throw the scarf ring under the coffin at the very last minute. Brown Thomas's, her mother had said, when she had asked where the ring had been bought. And they'd given it to Connie because she didn't want it herself anymore. This, uh, this afternoon, in the quiet bedroom, there would be other things family brooches, familiar earrings, and clothes and shoes, of course. Odds and ends and drawers, but she and her father were up to that. All right, Connie, he asked, turning left instead of taking the knock lofty road, which was a long way around. The there had been no pain. That had been managed well. Well, she was at the hospice, and when she came home at the end, because suddenly she wanted to, you could tell that there had been no pain. Because we prayed for that, I suppose, Connie had said when everything was over, and her father had said supposed to. More important than anything, it was that there had been no pain. Oh, I'm okay, she said. They have to come to the house. They won't stay long. I know. You've been a strength, Connie. He meant it. He himself had been the source of strength at first, and had seen her through the time before she began to give back what he had given to her. She had adored her mother. Just to be hospitable, he said, saying too much. I know we have to be. Connie was 11, and had her mother's faded blue eyes and hair the color of corn stalks, as her mother had been too. The freckles on her forehead and the bridge of her nose were a feature of her own. We can get, get down to it when they're gone, she said as they drove on past the two cottages where nobody lived. Down the hill, that became almost dark, beach foliage over, meeting overhead. Mrs. Archdale had been given the lift by the Dobbs brothers, the red Ford Escort already turning <laughs> in, at On the uneven surface of the avenue, other cars were progressing cautiously, watched by the fenced sheep on either side. Come in, come in, Connie's father invited the mourners, who already left their cars and were conversing in quiet tones on the gravel in front of the house. He was a tall, thin man, dark hair beginning to go grey, a boniness distinguishing his features. Somberly dressed today, he was quite notably handsome. He had known much longer that his child, that his wife was going to die, but always at first there they had been hope of a kind. Connie had been told when there was not. The hall door wasn't locked. He'd left it so, wanting people to go in as soon as they arrived, but no one had. <sighs> he pushed it open and stood aside. All of them would know the way, and Mrs. O'Daly would be their teammate. maid. When Teresa was left by her husband, she felt humiliated by the desertion. "You'll have them to yourself," he said, with its gentleness. She considered. "I promise you, I won't be a nuisance about that." He spoke of their two children, who she had always believed were fonder of him than of her. They were of her and it seemed wrong that they should be deprived of him. In her lowness at the time, she'd even said so, had felt she should be punished further for her failure to keep a marriage together. She'd lose him, too. Oh, no, he had protested. No, I would never do that. Among the mourners in the drawing room, she remembered that with poignancy, wondered if the pain of death so early in a manage left behind the same cool rawness that did not change and lingered for so long. I'm sorry, she said, when Connie's father put a hand around her arm and murmured that she was good to have come. I'm awfully sorry, Robert, she said, murmuring also. She knew him as Connie's father, her own daughter, Melissa, being Connie's particular friend. She'd know him well. More often than not, he wasn't there when she brought Melissa to spend the day at the farm. She had liked Connie's mother, but had never had much of a conversation with her, they being different kinds of people, and the house was a very busy place. During all the years, Teresa had known that the house gnome was employed to help in it as no one was except for odd days during the summer on the farm itself. Teresa had guessed that present bleak occasion would be in the hands of Mrs. O'Daly, who in her capable countrywoman's way would have offered to see-, see to things. She wasn't the only one who poured the tea now, cups and saucers laid out on the table that didn't belong to the drawing room. A small scuttly man who worked on the roads and took on anything else he could get was handing round plates of biscuits and egg and sandwiches. He did it very well, someone remarked to Teresa, your rector did. Yes, he did. A couple she couldn't place, whose way of referring to Mr. Crozier suggested they weren't of locality. Nodding a nervous confirmation, Teresa thought she probably would have even known them if they'd come out from Clonmel. Yes, Mr. Crozier did funerals well, she said. We're distant cousins, the woman said, a generation back. I live quite near. It's lovely here, the quiet, the man said. You notice the quiet. We didn't know until we picked up the Irish Times, the woman said. Well, we'd lost touch. Saddens us now, of course. Amanda nodded that into place to our lost touch. Yes. Teresa was 41, still pretty, her round face brightened by a smile that came easily and lingering. As if it belonged to those features in a way as permanent as they were themselves, her reddish hair was cut quite short. She had to watch her weight and adamantly did so. She shook her head when O'Daly pressed his plate over bourbon creams to her. We drove over, the woman she was in conversation with imparted, from uh, Mitchellston. Oh, good of you to come. They deprecated that, and Teresa looked around. When she woke that morning, she found herself wondering if her husband would be there. If he'd drive down from Dublin since the death would have shocked her. But among the mourners in the drawing room, she didn't see him. It seemed quite sparse attendance in the large, ordinary, furnished room, for not everyone who had been at the church had come. But Teresa knew her husband hadn't been at the church either. It was years now since they'd met. He'd ceased to bother with his children as soon as other children were born to him. As good as his word about not being a nuisance, Teresa supposed. When everyone had gone, Connie helped the O'Daly's to clear up, and when that was done, the O'Dalys went too. She and her father did what her mother requested, taking her things from the wardrobe and the dressing table drawer. <laughs> late before all that was completed, before Connie and her father sat together in the kitchen, he poached their eggs when they decided to have eggs. He asked her to watch the toast. We'll manage, he said. The farm had come to Robert when he married, introducing him to a way of life he had not sought, and which he did not imagine he would take to. In fact, he did, and over the years transformed the farm his wife had not long ago inherited and turned it from a sluggish, neglected enterprise into a fairly thriving one. It was a means of livelihood, too, and more than that, a source of personal satisfaction for Robert, that he succeeded with crops and stock, about which he had once known nothing. All this continued when he was widowed, when the house and land became entirely his. There were no changes on the farm, but in the house to which Mrs. O'Daly now came for three hours every weekday morning. Connie and her father, while slowly coming to terms with the loss they had suffered, shared the awareness of a ghost that fleetingly demanded no more than to be remembered. Life continuing could not fold away what had happened, but it offered something, during the drama of death's immediacy. And then, when almost two years had passed since the funeral, Robert asked Teresa to marry him. It was a natural thing, having known one another through the friendship of their daughters. They had come to know one another better in the new circumstances. Teresa continued to drive Melissa to the farm, along with her much younger brother, when he was made welcome there by Connie, but was still too young to cycle. And Robert, doing his bit as often as he could, drove the two of them back to the bungalow at Ferret Bridge, where their father in his day had attempted to get a pottery going. The day he asked Teresa to marry him, Robert had looked up from the cabbages he was weeding, and seen her coming towards him along the verge of the field. She brought him a tea and a can, which she had often did when she stayed all afternoon to save him the journey later to Ferret Bridge. A year after the death she had begun to fall in love with him. I never knew, he said in the cabbage field, when Teresa's response to his proposal was to tell him that, I thought you'd turn me down. She took the can of tea from his hand and lifted it to her lips, the first intimacy between them, for their first embrace before they spoke flat. Oh, Robert, not in a million years would I turn you down, she whispered. There were difficulties, but they didn't matter as they would have once. In Ireland, they could both remember, it would have been commented upon that she, born into a religious face that was not Robert's, had attended a funeral service in his alien church. It would have been declared that marriage would not do, that the divorce which had brought Teresa to an end could not be recognized. Questions would have been asked about children that who might be born to them. To which belief were they promised? In which safe haven might they know only their own kind? Such difficulties still trailed like cusks caught in old cobwebs. But there were fewer interfering strictures now in how children were brought up and havens were less often sought. A year older than Connie had received her early schooling from the nuns in Clonville. And had gone to an undenominational boarding school in dublin her brother still attended the national school at Fairbridge. connie went to miss mortimer whose tiny academy for protesting children her mother's choice because it was convenient was conducted in an upstairs room at the rectory 10 minutes away along the roof path but at the end all three would be together at melissa's boarding school co-educational and of the present how lovely all is that teresa murmured there was a party at which the engagement was announced Wine in the afternoon and Mrs. O'Daly's egg sandwiches again, and Teresa's sponge cakes and her brandy snaps and meringues. The sun came out after what had been a showery morning, allowing the celebration to take place in the garden. Overgrown and wild in places, the garden's neglect went back to the time of death. Although sometimes when she would come to keep an eye on the children, Teresa had done her best with the draining beds, which had particularly been the task of Connie's mother. She would do better now, Teresa promised herself, looking about among the guests that she had seen among the mourners. Again, half expecting to see the man who had left her, wanting him to be there, wanting him to know that she was loved again, that she had survived the indignity he had so casually subjected her to, that she was happy. But he wasn't there, as naturally he wouldn't be. All that was over, and the cousins from Mintelston with whom she had conversed on the afternoon with the funeral, naturally weren't there either. Robert was happy too, because Teresa was, and because all around him at the party there were no signs of disapproval, only signs and smiles of approbation. Because the wedding was not to take place until later in the summer, after Melissa's return for the holidays, Connie and her father continued for a while to be alone together, managing as he said they would. Robert brought half a dozen Carolized Caps, a breed he had never had on the farm before. He liked every year doing something new, and he liked the Caps. buying and selling were a pattern. His tasks were repetition. He repaired the fences, tightened the barbed wire when it was possible, renewing it when it wasn't. He looked out for the many ailments that beset sheep. He lifted the first potatoes and noted every day the ripening of his barley. Teresa dragged clumps of scotch grass and treacherous little nettles out of the Sanguine and Silvaticum, taking a troll to the docks. She cut down the Johnson's blue, weary of letting it spread too wildly, but wouldn't have known to leave the cashmere purple a little bit longer, or the pretentious sturdy roots were a job to divide. A notebook left behind instructed her in all that. Miss Mortimer closed her small school for the summer, and Connie was at home all day then. Sometimes Melissa's brother, Melissa's brother was there, a small, thin child called Nat, a name that, according to Melissa, couldn't be more suitable since he closely re- resembled an insect. Do you want to come with us? Teresa invited Connie when Melissa's term had ended, and she was setting off to meet her at the railway station in Clonmel. Connie hesitated, then said she didn't. That surprised Teresa. She had driven over especially from Farrah Bridge, as she always did when Melissa came back for the holidays. It surprised her, but afterwards she realized she somehow sensed before she spoke that Connie was going to say no. She was puzzled, but didn't let it show. Come back here, shall we, she she suggested, since this, too, was always happening on Melissa's first evening home. If that's what you like, Connie said. The train was 20 minutes late, and when Teresa returned to the farm with Melissa and Nat, Connie wasn't in the house, and when her father came in later, she wasn't with him either. As she sometimes was, Connie, they all called in the yard, her father going into some of the sheds. Melissa and her brothers went to the end of the avenue, a little way along the road in both directions. Connie, they called out in the garden, although they could see she wasn't there. Connie, they called, going from room to room in the house. Her father was worried. She didn't say he was, but Melissa could tell, so could Teresa. She can't be far, she said. Her bicycle's here. She drove Melissa to Fairbridge to unpack her things, and Nat went with them. She telephoned the farm then. There wasn't any answer, and she guessed that Robert was still looking for his child. The telephone was ringing again when Connie came back. She came downstairs. She'd been on the roof. She said, "You went up to the trap door at the top of the attic stairs. You could lie down on the warm lead and read a book." Her father shook her head, saying it wasn't safe to climb out on the roof. He made a promise not to again. "What's the matter, Connie?" he had asked her when she went to say goodnight. Oh, Connie said nothing was hey, propped up in front of her. Nothing was propped up in front of her was the book she'd been reading on the roof, *The Citadel* by A. J. Cronin. Surely you don't understand that, Connie her father said, and she said she wouldn't read a book she didn't understand.
1: watched the furniture being unloaded. The men lifted it up from the yellow removal van. Each piece familiar to her from the day spent in the bungalow at at Farah Bridge. Space had been made. Some of the existing furniture moved out to be stored in one of the outhouses. Alyssa wasn't there. She was helping her mother rearrange in the half-empty rooms at Farah Bridge. The furniture that remained, which would have to be sold in the bungalow, was. Because there wasn't room for it at the farm. There had been a notice up all summer announcing the sale of the bungalow, but no one had made an offer yet. Every penny would go to the farm. Connie had heard Teresa sing. Nat, whom Teresa had uh, had over, had driven over earlier. Watched with Connie in the hall. He was silent this morning as he often was. His thin arms wrapped tightly around his body in a way that suggested he suffered from a cold, although the day was warm. Now again, he glanced at Connie, as if expecting her to say something about what was hap—what was happening, but she didn't. All morning, he took Miss O'Dally, brought, her th- brought the men tea, and later, when they finished, Connie's father gave them a drink in the kitchen small glasses of whiskey, except for the man who was the driver, who was given what remained in the bottle to take away with him. That's a lovely piece of dust, Mrs. O'Dally committed in the hall, referring to a blue and white soup tureen that the men had placed on the shelf of the hall stand. Having finished her morning's work,
0: she had gone from room to room,
1: inspecting the furniture that had come, and and the glass in the hall. Inspecting the furniture that had come, and the glass and China in the hall. Isn't that really lovely? She exclaimed again about the soup tureen. It was cracked. Connie saw a long crack in the lid. It used to be on the sideboard of the dining room in the bungalow.
0: She never much
1: noticed it then, but in the hall it seemed... Chooser.
0: Melissa was
1: pretty, tall, and slender, with long fair hair and greenish eyes. She liked jokes and was clever, although she did not want to be and often pretend she was Time to measure the maggot, maggot, she said later the same day. Her contention was that her brother had ceased to grow and would grow no more. Connie regularly made him stand against the door jamb of Connie's bedroom in hope of finding an increase in his modest attire. Connie shook her head when she, when this was again suggested. She's reading the belong to me, and went on doing. So now on his way upstairs already, for he enjoyed the ceremonial attention. looked disappointed. Poor little maggot, Melissa said. Poor little maggot, Connie. You've gone and upset him. You shouldn't call your brother a maggot. Hey, outraged. Hey, outraged. Hey, outraged Melissa, staring Mr. at Connie's calm features. Hey, come on. Connie turned down the corner of a page and began to walk away. It's only a blooming year house, Connie said. The day Connie's mother came back from the hospice, Mr. Mortimer had pinned up pictures of flowers. Miss Mortimer painted her picture herself before the flowers. There had been clowns. Foxglove, Connie had said when Miss Mortimer asked. Go home on the river path. (laughs) Connie had been thinking of that. Of the four new pictures on the schoolroom. Well, of Miss Mortimer saying that soon there would be a house left anywhere, the schoolroom stayed on her, on in her mind. Nearly always when she was going home, the writing on the blackboard, the carpet and board showing all around it, the table they and sat at, Miss Mortimer's too. They the rectory itself, stayed in two flights of stairs, the white hall door, three steps, two steps to gravel. Her father didn't wave when she saw him coming toward her. It was drizzling. And she thought that that was maybe why he was coming to meet her. But often in winter it rained, and he didn't. It was her mother who used to. "Hello, Connie," she said. He said, and she knew that what, and he knew that her mother had come back from the hospice, as she had, had she said. She, he took her hand, not telling her because she knew she didn't cry. She wanted to ask in case it was different from what she had. But she didn't, because it didn't want her here if it was all, it's all right, her father said. He went with her to the room, and that had become her mother's, overlooking the garden. She touched her mother's hand, and he lifted up her up so that he could kiss her on the cheek, as often he'd done before. Mr. Kazir, the rector, was standing by the windows in the drawing room when they went downstairs to <coughs> She hadn't known he was there. Then the O'Dallys came. You stay here with me, Miss O'Dally said in the kitchen. I'll hear you and your reading. But it wasn't reading on a Tuesday. Another verse to learn instead, and six sentences to write. You're going to write them then, Miss Odeley asked. You're going to think them up? She didn't want to. She learned the verse and said it to her father when he came to sit beside her. But the next day she didn't have to go to Miss Mortimer's. But people came in the morning. She could hear the footsteps in the hall and the stairs. She couldn't hear voices. It was in the afternoon that her mother died. That's not like Connie Robert said. No, it isn't. When Teresa had been told by her children what Connie had said to them, she had guessed with a sudden bitter intuition that everything going well was over, and she had wondered where she and Robert had gone wrong. Robert was simply bewildered. The wedding to be conducted by Mr. Cousier as a purely family occasion was less than three weeks off.
0: No going away afterward,
1: no honeymoon, because the time of the year on the farm wasn't ready. Connie said, Teresa shook her head. She didn't know but suspected nothing else and was right. We wanted to be married, Robert said. Nothing was going to stop that now. Teresa hesitated, but only for a moment. Nothing is, she said. The children children managed to get on, even when they're strangers to one another. Teresa didn't say that being strangers might make things easier. She didn't say it because she knew she didn't know why that should be. But Melissa, who never wept, wept often now affected as a stranger would not have been. The books Connie pretended to read were in the dining room bookcases on either side of the fireplace. They had been her mother's book, picked up at the country house auctions. Some thrown away when the shelves became full, all of them old, belonging to another time. The man with red hair, her mother said, you'll love that, and Dr. Bradley remembers. At the random harvest, only Jamaica Inn retained its paper jacket, yellow without a picture. And the stars looked down. Her mother had said, You'll love the stars, look down. Connie took it to the roof to lead to, to the lead-covered gully she had found wide enough to lie on between two slopes of slate. Every time she went there, she wished she didn't have to obey her father, disobey her father, and always took care not to spend too long there in case she was discovered. Sometimes she stood up, protected from sight by the bulk of the chimney, and far away saw her father in the fields, or Teresa. Among the grenoums, sometimes Melissa and Nat were on the avenue. Nat on the carrier, and Melissa on of Melissa's bicycle. His small legs spread wide so they they wouldn't catch in the spokes. Theresa felt that she never loved Robert more, and felt that she was loved herself more. Steadfastly, even than before, as if she thought the trouble brought such closeness, or was there panic? She wondered. In um, other moments, was it panic? Was it in panic that the depths of trusted be trapped? Was it in panic that she widowed and the rejected protected that what they had been able to protect before? She did not know the answers to her questions. It only seemed all wrong that a child's ab- she should mock what was so fairly due. Connie! Robert found her in the house where the furniture was. He had folded a dusty sheet and was sitting in the armchair of which the springs had gone, which should have been thrown out years ago. Connie! He interrupted her, for she had not heard him. Her book was Folly Bridges. She marked her place with a finger. She smiled at him. No one considered that she recently turned sulky. There's no sign of that. Even when she told Melissa and Nat that the house was not theirs, she she apparently simpli, simply ins- uh, said it. You're troubled because Teresa and I aren't married, Connie. I'm all right. You didn't seem to mind before. The armchair had high backs with wings, and it's fairly red velvet badly worn in places of... And brought a broadest of flowers, stitched where an amethyst might be. It's very good, Connie said, speaking about the book she held. Yes. Will you read it, if you would like me to? Connie nodded. Will you read it, if you would like me to? Connie nodded. And they could not. And they could talk about it. He said, if he re- if he read it, they could talk about it. Yes, she could. You've always liked Teresa, Connie. You've always liked Melissa and Nat. It isn't easiest for us to understand. Couldn't it stay here, the furniture? You don't want? Couldn't we keep it here? Oh, here it's a bit damp for furniture. Can we put it back then? Is that what worrying you, Connie? The furniture? When the books are thrown away, I know that every single one of them was about. but for heaven's sakes, the books won't be thrown away. I think they will be. Really? Robert went away. He didn't look for Teresa to tell her about the conversation. Every year at this time, he erected a coral where his ewes paddled through a disinfectant. It crowded, it was now. While he remembered his half-hearted protestations and Connie's unsatisf- unsatisfactory responses, oh, come on, come on, get on with it. Impatient with his sheep, as he had not been with his daughter, he wondered if Connie hated him. He, felt, uh, she, he, he had felt she did, although nothing like that had showed or had echoed in her voice. From the roof, she saw a car she'd never seen before and guessed why it had come in one of her drawers of rickety Welsh draw- dressers. She found a shopping list.
0: She thought she remembered it lost. Irony starch, baking powder, she read. The car that had come was parked in the yard when she'd come down to the roof. A man was standing beside it. She referred to the furniture that was to be sold, as Connie had thought he might. Anyone around, He asked her. It was a big... Red-faced man in turquoise. He thought he'd never find the house. He said. He asked her if she was expected, if this was the right place. And she wanted to say it wasn't, but Teresa came out of the house then. Go and get your father, she said. And Connie nodded and went to where she'd seen him on the roof. Don't sell the furniture, she begged. Instead of saying the man had come. One night when the wedding was five days away, Teresa drove over to the farm. About to go to bed, she knew she wouldn't be able to sleep, and wrote a Melissa saying where she was going. It was after half past one, and there hadn't been a sign of life. She would have driven away again, but the lights were on in the big drawing room. Rob had car. He'd been drinking, he confessed, as he let Teresa in. I don't know how to make sense to her, he said really nice. Without asking, he poured her some whiskey. I don't know what to do, Teresa. I know you don't. When she came to stand beside me while I was milking this afternoon, when she didn't say anything, but I could hear her pleading, I thought she was possessed. But later on, we talked as if none of all this was happening. She laid at the table. We ate the trout I'd fried, we washed the plates up. But dear Teresa, I can't destroy the childhood that is left to her. I think you're perhaps just a little bit drunk. Yeah. He didn't insist that there must be a way, and no one frightened him, Teresa knew there wasn't. She was frightened herself while she was with him, now while wordlessly they shared the horrors of his alarm. Was some act too terrible for a child waiting in the desolation of despair to become a child? They did not speak of what an imagination made of how it might be. Nurtured in anger's pain, and desperation and betrayal, the ways it might become unbearable. They walked along on the avenue, close to one another in the refreshing air. The sky was lightning, dawn an hour away. The shadows of danger went with them, too treacherous to take chances with. Our love still matters, Teresa whispered, it always will. The calf had been born and safely delivered. It had exhausted her father, Connie could tell. And Ray that had begun a week ago had hardly ceased, washing his winter seed into a mud. It'll be all right, he said. He knew what she was thinking as he watched her being careful with the plates that were warming in the oven, careful with the coffee she made, letting it sit at the moment. Coffee at supper time was what he'd always liked. She hated milk and poured it from the saucepan. The bread was sown and slices waiting on the born butter beside them. There were tomatoes, the first of the Blenheims, the last of the Tayberries, pork steak browned on the pan. It was not obliqueness. Robert was aware of that. In moments like the moments that were passing now and often too at other times, he discerned in what his daughter's obituary abducery, a spirit still there that was not malicious. In the kitchen that was so familiar to both them, and outside in the raw cold of autumn, when she came to him in the fields, she was, as events had made her, the recipient of a duty she could not repudiate. It had seemed to her that an artificial household would demand that she should, and perhaps it might have. Robert had come to understand that Teresa confessed that nothing was as tight as she'd imagined. There were no rights that canceled other rights, less comfort than she thought for the rejected and the widowed and no fairness either they'd been hasty she did to say although tears might seem a long enough hiatus they'd been clumsy and not known it they'd been careless yet were not careless people they were little to blame but only that and Robert knew that time in passing would settle how the summer had been left Tut would gather up at the ends to see to it that his daughter's honoring of a memory was love that mattered so and mattered even